Chapter Twenty, Part Three of Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter Twenty, The Hundred Years' War, Philip the Sixth and John the Second. Part Three. The burghers of Ghent had their minds still filled with their late alarm when they heard that, by order, it was said, of the King of France, Count Louis had sent and beheaded at the castle of Rupehond, in the very bed in which he was confined by his infirmities, their fellow-citizen Solver of Courtray, Van Artevelt's father-in-law, who had been kept for many months in prison for his intimacy with the English. On the same day the Bishop of Senlis and the Abbot of Saint-Denis had arrived at Tournay, and had superintended the reading out in the market-place of a sentence of excommunication against the Gentees. It was probably at this date that Van Artevelt, in his vexation and disquietude, assumed in Ghent an attitude threatening and despotic even to tyranny. He had continually after him, says Froissart, sixty or eighty armed varlets, among whom were two or three who knew some of his secrets. When he met a man whom he had hated or had in suspicion, this man was at once killed, for Van Artevelt had given this order to his varlets, The moment I meet a man, and make such and such a sign to you, slay him without delay, however great he may be, without waiting for more speech. In this way he had many great masters slain. As soon as these sixty varlets had taken him home to his hotel, each went to dinner at his own house, and the moment dinner was over they returned and stood before his hotel, and waited in the street until that he was minded to go and play and take his pastime in the city, and so they attended him till supper-time. And know that each of these hirelings had per diem four groschen of Flanders for their expenses and wages, and he had them regularly paid from week to week. And even in the case of all that were most powerful in Flanders, knights, esquires, and burghers of the good cities, whom he believed to be favourable to the Count of Flanders, them he banished from Flanders, and levied half their revenues. He had levies made of rents, of dues on merchandise, and all the revenues belonging to the count, wherever it might be in Flanders, and he dispersed them at his will, and gave them away without rendering any account. And when he would borrow of any burghers on his word for payment, there was none that durst say him nay. In short, there was never in Flanders, or in any other country, duke, count, prince, or other, who can have had a country at his will as James Van Artevelt had for a long time. It is possible that, as some historians have thought, Froissart, being less favourable to burghers than to princes, did not deny himself a little exaggeration in this portrait of a great burgher patriot, transformed by the force of events and passions into a demagogic tyrant. But some of us may have too vivid a personal recollection of similar scenes to doubt the general truth of the picture, and we shall meet before long in the history of France during the fourteenth century, with an example still more striking and more famous than that of Van Artevelt. Whilst the Count of Flanders, after having vainly attempted to excite an uprising against Van Artevelt, was being forced, in order to escape from the people of Bruges, to mount his horse in hot haste, at night and barely armed, and to flee away to St. Omer, Philip of Valois and Edward III were preparing, on either side, for the war which they could see drawing near. Philip was vigorously at work on the Pope, the Emperor of Germany, and the Prince's neighbours of Flanders, 
in order to raise obstacles against his rival or rob him of his allies. He ordered that short-lived meeting of his states-general about which we have no information left us, save that it voted the principle that no talliage could be imposed on the people if urgent necessity or evident utility should not require it, and unless by concession of the estates. Philip, as chief of feudal society, rather than of the nation which was forming itself little by little around the lords, convoked at Amiens all his vassals, great and small, laic or cleric, placing all his strength in their cooperation, and not caring at all to associate the country itself in the affairs of his government. Edward, on the contrary, whilst equipping his fleet and amassing treasure at the expense of the Jews and Lombard usurers, was assembling his parliament, taking to it of this important and costly war, for which he obtained large subsidies, and accepting without making any difficulty the vote of the Commons' House, which expressed a desire to consult their constituents upon this subject, and begged him to summon an early Parliament, to which there should be elected, in each county, two knights taken from among the best landowners of their counties. The King set out for the Continent. The Parliament met, and considered the exigencies of the war by land and sea, in Scotland and in France. Traders, ship-owners, and mariners were called and examined, and the forces determined to be necessary were voted. Edward took the field, pillaging, burning, and ravaging, destroying all the country for twelve or fourteen leagues to extent, as he himself said in a letter to the Archbishop of Canterbury. When he set foot on French territory, Count William of Hainault, his brother-in-law, and up to that time his ally, came to him and said that he would ride with him no farther, for that his presence was prayed and required by his uncle, the King of France, to whom he bore no hate, and whom he would go and serve in his own kingdom, as he had served King Edward on the territory of the Emperor, whose vicar he was, and Edward wished him Godspeed. Such was the binding nature of feudal ties that the same lord held himself bound to pass from one camp to another, according as he found himself upon the domains of one or the other of his suzerains in a war one against the other. Edward continued his march towards St. Quentin, where Philip had at last arrived with his allies, the kings of Bohemia, Navarre, and Scotland, after delays which had given rise to great scandal and murmurs throughout the whole kingdom. The two armies, with a strength, according to Froissart, of a hundred thousand men on the French side, and forty-four thousand on the English, were soon facing one another, near Boyenfoss, a large burg of Picardy. A herald came from the English camp to tell the King of France that the King of England demanded of him battle. To which demand, says Froissart, the King of France gave willing assent, and accepted the day, which was fixed at first for Thursday the 21st, and afterwards for Saturday the 25th of October, 1339. To judge from the somewhat tangled accounts of the chroniclers and of Froissart himself, neither of the two kings was very anxious to come to blows. The forces of Edward were much inferior to those of Philip, and the former had accordingly taken up, as it appears, a position which rendered attack difficult for Philip. There was much division of opinion in the French camp. Independently of military grounds, a great deal was said about certain letters from Robert, King of Naples, a mighty necromancer and full of mighty wisdom, it was reported, who, after having several times cast their horoscopes, had discovered by astrology and from experience that if his cousin, the King of France, were to fight the King of England, the former would be worsted. In thus disputing and debating, says Froissart, the time passed till full midday. 
a little afterwards a hare came leaping across the fields, and rushed amongst the French. Those who saw it began shouting and making a great halloo. Those who were behind thought that those who were in front were engaging in battle, and several put on their helmets and gripped upon their swords. Thereupon several knights were made, and Count and the Count of Hainault himself made fourteen, who were thenceforth nicknamed Knights of the Hare. Whatever his motive may have been, Philip did not attack, and Edward promptly began a retreat. They both dismissed their allies, and during the early days of November, Philip fell back upon St. Quentin, and Edward went and took up his winter quarters at Brussels. For Edward it was a serious check not to have dared to attack the king whose kingdom he made a pretense of conquering, and he took it grievously to heart. At Brussels he had an interview with his allies, and asked their counsel. Most of the princes of the Low Countries remained faithful to him, and the Count of Hainault seemed inclined to go back to him, but all hesitated as to what he was to do to recover from the check. Van Artevelt showed more invention and more boldness. The Flemish communes had concentrated their forces not far from the spot where the two kings had kept their armies looking at one another, but they had maintained a strict neutrality, and at the invitation of the Count of Flanders, who promised them that the King of France would entertain all their claims, Artevelt and Bredel, the deputies from Ghent and Bruges, even repaired to Courtrai to make terms with him. But as they got there nothing but ambiguous engagements and evasive promises, they let the negotiation drop, and whilst Count Louis was on his way to rejoin Philip at St. Quentin, Artevelt, with the deputies from the Flemish communes, started for Brussels. Edward, who was already living on very confidential terms with him, told him that if the Flemings were minded to help him keep up the war, and go with him whithersoever he would take them, they should aid him to recover Lille, Douai, and Bethune, then occupied by the King of France. Artevelt, after consulting his colleagues, returned to Edward, and, Dear sir, said he, you have already made such requests to us, and verily if we could do so whilst keeping our honour and faith, we would do as you demand, but we be bound by faith and oath, and on a bond of two millions of florins entered into with the Pope, not to go to war with the King of France, without incurring a debt to the amount of that sum, and a sentence of excommunication. But if you do that which we are about to say to you, if you will be pleased to adopt the arms of France, and quarter them with those of England, and openly call yourself King of France, we will uphold you for the true King of France. You, as King of France, shall give us quittance of our faith, and then we will obey you as King of France, and will go whithersoever you shall ordain. This prospect pleased Edward mightily, but it irked him to take the name and arms of that which he had as yet won no title. He consulted his allies. Some of them hesitated, but his most privy and especial friend, Robert d'Artois, strongly urged him to consent to the proposal. So a French prince and a Flemish burgher prevailed upon the King of England to pursue, as in assertion of his avowed rights, the conquest of the kingdom of France. King, prince, and burgher fixed Ghent as their place of meeting for the official conclusion of the alliance, and there, in January 1340, the mutual engagement was signed and sealed. The King of England assumed the arms of France quartered with those of England, and thenceforth took the title of King of France. Then burst forth, in reality, that war which was to last a hundred years, which was to bring upon the two nations the most violent struggles, as well as the most cruel sufferings, and which, at the end of a hundred years, was to end in the salvation of France from her tremendous peril, and the defeat of England in her unrighteous attempt. In January 1340, 
Edward thought he had won the most useful of allies. Artevelde thought the independence of the Flemish communes and his own supremacy in his own country secured, and Robert d'Artois thought with complacency how he had gratified his hatred for Philip of Valois. And all three were deceiving themselves in their joy and their confidence. Edward, leaving Queen Philippa at Ghent with Artevelde for her adviser, had returned to England, and had just obtained from the Parliament, for the purpose of vigorously pushing on the war, a subsidy almost without precedent, when he heard that a large French fleet was assembling on the coasts of Zealand, near the port of Ecluse, or Sluice, with the design of surprising and attacking him when he should cross over again to the continent. For some time past this fleet had been cruising in the channel, making descents here and there upon English soil, at Plymouth, Southampton, Sandwich, and Dover, and everywhere causing alarm and pillage. Its strength, they said, was a hundred and forty large vessels, without counting the smaller, having on board thirty-five thousand men, Normans, Pickards, Italians, sailors, and soldiers of all countries, under the command of two French leaders, Hugh Curet, titular admiral, and Nicholas Behuche, King Philip's treasurer, and of a famous Genoese buccaneer, named Barbavera. Edward, so soon as he received this information, resolved to go and meet their attack, and he gave orders to have his vessels and troops summoned from all parts of England to Orwell, his point of departure. His advisers, with the Archbishop of Canterbury at their head, strove but in vain to restrain him. "'You are all in conspiracy against me,' said he. "'I shall go, and those who are afraid can abide at home.' And go he did, on the 22nd of June, 1340, and aboard of his fleet went with him many an English dame, says Froissart, wives of earls, and barons, and knights, and burghers, of London, who were off to Ghent to see the Queen of England, for whom a long time past they had not seen, and King Edward guarded them carefully. For many a long day, said he, have I desired to fight those fellows, and now we will fight them, please God and St. George, for verily they have caused me so many displeasures that I would fain take vengeance for them, if I can but get it. On arriving off the coast of Flanders, opposite Ecluse, or Sluice, he saw so great a number of vessels that of mass there seemed to be verily a forest. He made his arrangements forthwith, placing his strongest ships in front, and manoeuvring so as to have the wind on the starboard quarter, and the sun astern. The Normans marvelled to see the English thus twisting about, and said, They are turning tail, they are not men enough to fight us. But the Genoese buccaneer was not misled. When he saw the English fleet approaching in such fashion, he said to the French admiral and his colleague, Behuche, Sirs, here is the King of England, with all his ships bearing down upon us. If ye will follow my advice, instead of remaining shut up in port, ye will draw out into the open sea. For if ye abide here, they, whilst they have in their favour sun and wind and tide, will keep you so short of room that ye will be helpless and unable to manoeuvre. Whereupon answered the treasurer, Behuche, who knew more about arithmetic than sea-fights, Let him go hang, whoever shall go out. Here will we wait and take our chance. Sir, replied Barbavera, if you will not be pleased to believe me, I have no mind to work my own ruin, and will get me gone with my galleys out of this hole. And out he went, with all his squadron, engaged the English on the high seas, and took the first ship which attempted to board him. But Edward, though he was wounded in the thigh, quickly restored the battle. After a gallant resistance, Barbavera sailed off with his galleys, and the French fleet found itself alone at grips with the English. 
the struggle was obstinate on both sides. It began at six in the morning of June 24, 1340, and lasted to midday. It was put an end to by the arrival of the reinforcements promised by the Flemings to the King of England. The deputies of Bruges, says their historian, had employed the whole night in getting under way an armament of two hundred vessels, and before long the French heard echoing about them the horns of the Flemish mariners sounding to quarters. These latter decided the victory. Behouche, Philip of Valois, treasurer, fell into their hands, and they, heeding only their desire of avenging themselves for the devastation of Cadson in 1337, hanged him from the mast of his vessel, out of spite to the king of France. The admiral, Hugh Curé, though he surrendered, was put to death, and with him perished so great a number of men-at-arms that the sea was dyed with blood on this coast, and the dead were put down at quite thirty thousand men. End of chapter 20, part 3